Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here. We'll continue with our discussion of Srila Jiva Goswami's Paramatma Sandarbha. We're in the 93rd Anucheda in the fifth subsection. The subsection is dealing with Bhagavan has no experience of material misery. We began reading through the Anucheda and we'll continue where we left off. The flaw posited by some of Bhagavan not being omniscient because of his absence of awareness of misery is also negated by the very same example of the sun indicating that Bhagavan's non-awareness of misery in no way contradicts his omniscience. Just as the absence of darkness in the sun does not obstruct the all-pervasiveness of its radiance. On the contrary, Bhagavan's non-awareness of misery has been shown to be an attribute. Therefore, let it be admitted that there is some knowledge of misery in general in Bhagavan, though he certainly has no direct experience of misery. Consequently, even though the jivas are suffering from material miseries even at present in the spite of the rulership of Bhagavan, who is utterly capable of all actions, all inaction, and all contrary action whatsoever, and who is the crest jewel among all those who are benevolently disposed to others to the supreme extent, the flaw of cruelty in him is denied precisely for this reason, because of his not being directly in contact with their suffering. So a couple things to consider in this regard. So Jiva Goswami is saying we can't attribute cruelty to the Supreme because he has no direct experience of misery. And Jiva does say, we'll admit that he's, he's omniscient, he's fully aware of everything, but he has no direct experience of misery. And the examples given of the sun has no direct experience of darkness. I was thinking we could turn this around and look at it from our perspective also. We have, as bhaktas, as sadhikas, we have some knowledge of transcendence. We have some knowledge of the blissful experience of the experience of devotion in its fullness through the stories of the sadhus relayed in the scriptures, we can know what that experience of seeing God is like. We have many descriptions in the Bhagavatam of, of uh, the revelation of having the Lord's direct association. We have, um, especially in the 10th canto, insight into the loving relationships of the Lord's most intimate disciples and himself in the most intimate setting of Raj. Uh, we have knowledge through Chaitanya Charitamrita of the ecstatic emotions experienced at the perfectional stage 
of devotional practice even within the sadhaka's body, although some of those emotions that are expressed in the Anchalila of the Chaitanya Charitamrita are actually beyond the scope of what we call having the ability to experience those in a human body. And that's pointed out in the scripture. But the ideal is there, that these are ecstatic emotions that one can experience in the completion of Bhava Bhakti and Prem Bhakti, that all these specific expressions, sattvic abhavs and bodily manifestations that Sri Chaitanya exhibited, well, he exhibited to show this is the extremes to which complete detachment and complete attachment can take one. So as a way of example, he exhibited these symptoms in human society to his most intimate associates. What I mean by turning it around is the majority of us here probably have just an inkling of what it would be like to experience ruchi, asakti, bhava, prema. I mean, we're more or less, I would say, at least speaking for myself, we're at the the sadhik, we're at the beginning stages, the sadhika stage, sadhana bhakti in practice, not sadhana bhakti in ecstasy, what to speak of sadhana bhakti in or bhakti and pure love of God. So we know these exist. We know these emotions exist. We know we have we have seen them on the body of saintly people that we've been in the presence of. We've seen them through the narrations of the sadhus. We've seen what these experiences have been like and what this these revelations of actually seeing the Lord either internally or externally has resulted in. We've been given some glimpse through the writings of, of all the great Acharyas. This is going to be a wonderful thing. Just hang on. But we don't have any direct experience. So in a similar way, going the other direction... Krishna himself has no direct experience of what we have direct experience of. So it can give us some glimpse of the fact that although he's completely omniscient, still it's not within his... Of course, for us, we, have, we, have, we hold out the hope you know, against hope that we can one day attain those levels of spiritual experience. But that's as far as the analogy goes that I'm trying to make. But I'm just trying to present to us something that will give us a little bit of insight into that non-experiential understanding so we can't. We're not experiencing the highest levels. Maybe we had. We've had some 
some little glimmer from time to time, from good fortune and good association and extraordinary mercy. And in due time, that glimmer will become a ray, and that ray is compared to the stage of Bhava Bhakti. Full immersion in the sunlight is compared to Prem Bhakti. So these little glimmers from time to time in the beginning stage to kind of keep our enthusiasm going, to keep our interest, they give us some indication only. So similarly, the, and it's only an indication. I mean, when we read what the sadhus write, what the acharyas have written and relayed to us, that if you were if you were to truly enter into the, I mean, it's overwhelming. I just thought that that would be an analogy that we could try to set. We're going to go into some territory here, which is, which is quite quite profound for us. Jiva's brought it up himself. I mean, this is directly in his Anacheda. What about the Lord's omniscience? How can you say he knows everything when he doesn't know material misery? Can we make that claim? And Jiva says, Therefore, let it be admitted that there is some knowledge of misery in general. Just like we have some knowledge of Prem Bhakti in general. We know it's out there. Though he certainly has no direct experience. Like us at this stage, we have no direct experience. So that's as far as my analogy goes in this regard. The happiness of devotees, however, is indeed a form of Bhagavan's devotion. And their misery, too, is simply a consequence of obstacles in attaining him. By this, the melting of the heart for Bhagavan is greatly increased. And this is nothing other than bhakti. Sometimes, as in the case of Gajendra, where the misery experienced is purely of the material variety, bhakti becomes manifest in the same way through the utterance of expression such as he alone is my refuge. The point being made here by Jiva Goswami is Kachendra was in misery. He was being attacked by a real crocodile and he was in, in pain. But the intervention by Krishna was in response to his bhakti, his utterance. It wasn't in response to the fact that he was in misery because Krishna responds to bhakti. Now, I've expanded what is, there's a, this is a long anacheda. I'm also going to expand it and go into some commentaries that Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur has given in this regard. Because we need to understand, and I think it will nourish our spiritual growth to, to fully unpack this. Because, well, where does karma leave off for the devotee and where does bhakti begin? 
am I still under the karmic thing and that's why I'm suffering or is Krishna really purifying me of specific samskaras or things that that will that will make the heart grow fonder because that's the only reason Krishna does it the separation the the apparent miseries of a devotee are not to be seen as by other devotees as as impediments they're meant to be seen in a devotional light so where's one leave off and the other begin we need to have a general understanding of that a specific understanding may not be there depending on our mood and depending on our mood Krishna's reciprocating if our mood is I'm surrendered to Krishna and I'm in my surrender I surrender everything and I surrender my my karma everything I have no need for it I only want bhakti in my life whether I'm suffering from my the reactions of my past sinful activities or I'm suffering because Krishna is purifying me of, of an arthas six or one half dozen or the other everything that's coming to me is coming from the Lord so if we have that attitude we're, we're fully under the protection of the Lord by that attitude alone it's more gray than a, than a distinct line because we know that from the beginning stages of the practice of sadhana bhakti klaishagna is is removed from the very beginning up to and including parabdha karma up to and including Vishwanath Chakravarti that course says then why, then why do we see devotees walking around in bodies who are advanced devotees we have to satisfy the atheists atheistic class of men if Krishna really displayed everything openly, then all their belief, their whole belief system would be obliterated. And similarly, we have the question: Well, why doesn't the Lord, if He has even even a glimmer of compassion for the suffering, just a faint knowledge, then He should just eliminate everybody's suffering? You can't force someone to stand in the, in the sunlight. Some people like darkness. To force everybody into the sunlight would in itself show partiality on the Lord's part. There's no question of love if there's no choice involved. Then we need to go deeper into a philosophical understanding. Well, we have a choice. but So that means we can fall from Vaikuntha. No. Because just as the Lord has no experience of material misery, the bhakta who's been completely overtaken by the Lord Swarup Shakti and that aspect of Swarup Shakti called Ladini and that sub-aspect called Prem Bhakti, once that has overtaken your nature, you've taken that up fully 
just like we take up fully a hunkar and a false sense of self, when you take up a, a different sense of self overtaken by the Lord's internal potency, you have no experience of material existence anymore. A faint memory, I think Prabhupada said, the dream state. Uh, I forget how what terminology you use, but it's not something that you would even consider. If you wake from a nightmare, do you really want to go, let me get back to sleep? i being chased by some ferocious animal. So Gajendra. Gajendra was really suffering. But what attracted Krishna? His prayers. And his prior engagement in bhakti. Oh, this is my devotee. Oh, he's praying to me. He's praying. Oh, he thinks he's in misery. Because really, Gajendra is not in misery, is he? If he is in misery, he's in misery. Why? He's right. He's in misery because he's associating with his material body. Krishna doesn't care for the association one way or another. He doesn't discriminate like that. Here's my advanced devotee and here's my... No. To the extent what he reciprocates to with is as they surrender unto me, I reciprocate accordingly. So a little bit of reciprocation for those that reciprocate a little. Now the the the, the glory of devotional practice is that as they surrender increases many fold as one advances. So as they surrender in the beginning, maybe going to the temple and having prasadam and, and, and that's it in the beginning. And then some more and more and more. And the more is more surrender to the state that somebody can't exist without being completely immersed in Krishna consciousness. It becomes their life and soul. We call those pure devotees. They don't do anything outside of the scope of Krishna consciousness. They don't even have dreams outside of Krishna consciousness. Everything is an immersion in Krishna. So Gajendra, Krishna doesn't distinguish except according to the love of his devotee. Somehow or other, Krishna heard the, the, the plea of Gajendra. It was a repeated plea. He was becoming more and more absorbed in Krishna, seeing, I don't, I can't win. I can't get out of this situation. So Jiva's trying to point out here that Krishna came because of the bhakti of Gajendra. Had nothing to do with the crocodile, had nothing to do with the fight that had gone on for, what was it, a hundred years it, it had nothing to do with any of that. It came, he came because of his appeal in bhakti. Jiva Goswami continues. Sometimes, as in the case of the twin Arjuna trees, the devotion of devotees like Sri Narada becomes manifest. Thus, it is exclusively the experience of a devotee's devotion in the form of humility 
that impels Bhagavan to compassion and not material misery. Because it is wrong to assume an inappropriate cause when an appropriate one is available. As Jiva says, it's wrong to assume an inappropriate cause when an appropriate cause is available. So, to say, <coughs> Krishna pulled down the twin Arjun trees because there were two souls in those trees who were demigods and they were suffering being forced in a tree. That would be, that would be one, one scenario you could give. But the proper scenario is they were blessed by Narada to, to have the association of Krishna sometime in the future. So in his cursing them to be trees, he also was bestowing a blessing. So that's the appropriate cause. That's the cause based on bhakti, which we know is the only thing that attracts the Supreme. Bhakti is the only thing that attracts him. So you can say Krishna was being merciful with, but really, Jiva is saying, look deeper. What's really happening here is they were blessed by the association of Narada and Narada, looking to their future in devotional life, arranged things. I'm sorry, what, what did you say about humility? It sounded like you said that the humility also elicits Krishna's compassion. Yeah, the devotee's humility. Okay. It says, thus, it, Jiva says, quote, thus, it is exclusively the experience of a devotee's devotion in the form of humility that impels Bhagavan to compassion and not material misery. Because they became humble being trees after so long a time. And that humility was caused by, ultimately, we, we, we would trace it back to their association with Narada. Although they really weren't very... They weren't seeking the association of the sadhu... They were simply drunk and trying to, under, you know, enjoy heavenly damsels. But Narada came through and there you have it. They became trees and in being trees, still they had a little association with Narada, who's the, the, the embodiment of devotion within a material universe. Narada, coming from Brahma, that's his position. He embodies devotion, so they had that, and just in that, even though they weren't they weren't directly aware, while being in trees for an extended period of time, the the awareness gradually it gradually dawned on them. Wow, we've offended a great sadhu here. Wonder what he's about. All he was doing was chanting Krishna Krishna when he walked through and saw us. What's that? And then gradually there's some humility. So that, that's what Jeeva is saying here. Because, because it is wrong to assume an appropriate co inappropriate cause when there's an appropriate... Moreover, if the existence of misery were the sole cause behind his compassion, then the suffering of worldly existence would have been completely uprooted. Jeeva is saying. There, that's it. The material world would evaporate. 
But there's reasons why it doesn't. Because there is free will. There are living entities that have no interest. Their, their, their consciousness is turned away from the Supreme. So therefore, they're given facility. It's not. If they weren't, then the Lord would be biased. So that will come up. If, however, one argues that material misery is undeniably an indirect cause, then let it be so. There is no harm. Again, he says, he gives some scope. All right. Okay. If you, if that's the way you want to look at it, but I'm trying to give you the deeper understanding here. Therefore, it is established that in either case, it is only the experience of the devotee's bhakti that impels Bhagavan to bestow delight upon the devotee. Thereafter, this is to be pointed out. Now remember, this is all Jiva. This is a, his writing of the Anucheda. If in spite of direct experiencing, directly experiencing the happy and mis happiness and misery of others, Bhagavan were to abandon them and grant happiness to or redress the misery of others instead, then only would he be subject to the charge of being biased. But Sri Bhagavan, Bhagavan, like a wish-fulfilling tree, is not liable to such accusation because there is no experience of material happiness or misery in him. This is stated by Sri Arkura. And Now we come to one of two verses that Jiva Goswami is going to um, introduce us to in this Anucheda which speak of the Kalpa Vriksha, the wish-fulfilling tree, and the nature of a wish-fulfilling tree, and the analogy between that nature and the Supreme. This is stated by Sri Akrora, and then this, this verse from the 38th chapter of the 10th canto. No one is dear to him, nor is anyone a bosom friend. There is no one who is not dear to him, nor anyone who is an object of hate or even indifference. Nevertheless, he loves and serves his devotees exactly as they love him. Just as a tree from the heavenly realm rewards those who approach it with the specific objects they seek. In this verse, the phrase, na kaschit, no one, means someone other than the devotees. Because according to the following statement, Bhagavan considers his devotees to be dear to him. What learned person, this, is, this continues with another quote from the 10th canto, what learned person would approach anyone for shelter other than you who are filled with love for your devotees, truthful, a well-wisher to all, and grateful? Next, Jiva quotes something that Lord Shiva Mahadev says, uh, taken from the sixth canto in relationship with the uh, narration of Chitraketu. Shiva says, No one is dear to him, and nobody is undear. No one is his own, and nobody is a stranger to him either. 
because he, Bhagavad, Hari, is the very self of all living beings. He is the beloved of all creatures. And this greatly fortunate Chitraketu is his dear servant, being of equal vision toward all and established in perfect peace. Indeed, I too am a beloved devotee of the infallible Bhagavan. I read something interesting this morning in regards to um, the whole affair with uh, Sati and her leaving her body. And she wanted to go to her dad's house, as you all know. And she was, Shiva said, you shouldn't do that. But he didn't really hold her back. But in the narration, Shiva, and this is very interesting, Shiva explained to her the reason that he was acting indifferent at the earlier sacrifice. So really the this thing started in, at an earlier sacrifice where there was the exchange of words and Daksha, Shiva walked out and Daksha walked out both and the Brahmins carried on the sacrifice, but both of them walked out, you know, frustrated with each other. Of course, Daksha was frustrated because he was he felt he was slighted when he entered the sacrificial arena you know it was his sacrifice it was like you know his thing and she was just sitting there and 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 just seemed to be ignoring him and therefore he he really got on Shiva's case and said what are you doing what kind of example you're setting i mean look at you covered with ashes and bones and I mean, I can't believe Brahma told me to give my youngest, most beautiful daughter to you. So later there was a sacrifice after they and his wife wanted to go. She was held back and she explained that you can't fault me for not showing proper respect to to your father during the sacrifice. You can't fault me because I was in a state of samadhi. And in the state of samadhi, I was in the state of Vasudev. I was experiencing directly Vasudev, Krishna. And you can't control that. You can't say, I'm going to go into Samadhi and experiencing the Lord, experiencing, experience the Lord at your whim. The Lord comes when He so desires. So, although Daksha saw that as a fault in me, really, if you knew what was going on, if you understand, understood the nature of the sadhus and understood my nature and understood what I was experiencing by observing my symptoms, you would never say that. So I, I was faultless because she may have also thought that her husband was not showing respect. So he explained that to her in that way. Well, he didn't explain it. That. He, he explained it in a verse and then 
Vishwanath Chakravarti in his commentary unpacked it and explained it in full that this is the state of Vasudeva and in Samadhi and the Lord comes as, as he sees fit under his own time. And you're kind of reminded of uh, Sringi's father. He was, under normal circumstances, he would have never neglected the king. But he was in a state of samadhi. You can't control those that ingoing process. It does overtake you at times. And sometimes you can be brought to external consciousness. Normally you'd think, you know, you would come out of it easily, like if somebody rang the doorbell or knocked on the door and, or somebody threw a snake, a dead snake on your shoulders, but you might not. And even with Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, we see in his manifest pastimes the same thing, that, you know, sometimes they could bring him out of trance and sometimes they couldn't for hours. But, when they wanted to, they just chant and hope for the best. Sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Now the same idea Jiva Goswami reinforces here of the uh, wish-fulfilling tree. He goes on to say, Sri Pallad too expressed the same sentiment. And then he quotes from How wonderful are your acts, O Lord! You have created the worlds through the cosmic play of your immeasurable yoga maya. You are omniscient, the self of all beings, and of equal vision. So although you are naturally without bias, you hold your devotees dear simply because it is your nature to respond in the manner of a wish-fulfilling tree in perfect uniformity with the core disposition of the supplicant. So as one approaches a a wish-fulfilling tree, Jiva continues, the meaning is as follows. Since you hold your devotees dear and moreover are of equal vision, so it is your nature to be without bias, avaisama. There is no favoritism in your character. This idea is expressed by the adjectival compound kalpataru swabhav that implies the reason why he is to be understood as unbiased. Because it is your nature to respond in perfect uniformity in the matter of a wish-fulfilling tree. Therefore, you do not have a biased nature, though you appear to, And this is extraordinarily wonderful. Thank you so much for your association.